In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Last week I preached a sermon on a text from the book of Leviticus, and I joked that if I announced a sermon series, a 12-week sermon series walking through the book of Leviticus, that two of you would show up for that, right? Well, this week's text represents the opposite side of that coin. Most Christians want to know what's going on in the book of Revelation, even if it freaks us out. I could come up with a 12-week Bible study or a sermon series, and I could drop a promotion in the local newspaper, and I guarantee you that it would attract people to come out. But, so why don't I do that? Well, for several reasons, but one of them being this, that most people would likely leave feeling disappointed. Not because God's Word is disappointing, But because of all the sensationalism around around this book over the last several decades in our culture, because for all the hoopla and for all the fear-mongering that many preachers have, have generated from this book, the real message stands in contrast and is very simple. The message of Revelation is very simple. My confirmands know this. I might put one on, can I put one on the spot? Wyatt, what's the message of the book of Revelation? The last book of the Bible, remember? No, on the spot, I didn't didn't prepare him. You're going to kick yourself. Jesus wins. There you go, I see. That's the message of the book of Revelation. It's been a while since we've studied Revelation, by the way, with the catechumens. Anyway, Jesus wins. That's the message. In a world of chaos and tribulation, where the devil pulls every stunt that he can to fight against, to terrorize, to rage against, to try to destroy Jesus' kingdom, we have certainty, we have confidence that he will never succeed. In the first chapter of Revelation, Jesus shows up to St. John on the island of Patmos, and here's what he says. He says, I am alive forevermore, and I have the key to death and to Hades. That sets the tone for the entire book. And Trevor, roll off the volume just a little bit, because I'm going to get loud in this sermon. Church, he did not appear to St. John on the island of Patmos to terrify him or to disturb him. He appeared to St. John on the island to comfort him. To say, John, I know that you and your brethren are going through the ringer right now. I know that it looks all so hopeless. But let me show you what's really going on. Let me show you how I am in control and I am working to implement the victory that I have secured on my cross and in my resurrection. That's Revelation. That won't sell any books. That won't get people to visit our church, but I can tell you, I can promise you that that is far better than any sensationalistic spin that we can put on God's Word whenever the Gospel doesn't excite us. That is better. Revelation 7 is this interlude that comes on the heels of this vision that John has given in Revelation chapter 6. He was shown this picture 
of the Lamb opening the seals and unleashing judgment upon the earth. We've got the four horsemen. We've got the martyrs in heaven crying out for God to avenge their blood. We've got earthquakes. We've got darkness. We've got people hiding in caves and in dens, sheltering themselves from the wrath of the Lamb. And then before that seventh seal is opened, before that final punctuation is put, we have this chapter right here. It's almost like this breath, this pause amid the chaos. We have two pictures exactly in Revelation chapter 7. And it's on those two pictures. It's those two pictures that John saw that I want you to see today by faith. Because when it comes to that second picture that we'll hear in just a bit, John is actually asked a question. There's this elder who is around God's throne. And he looks at John and he asks him, Who are these clothed in white robes and from where have they come? Who are these people? It's a great question. And John responds there, if you heard in the reading, John responds, Sir, you know. Now maybe he said that because he didn't know the answer. And this is a pretty slick way of uh, uh, playing hot potato and pitching it back to the other person. You know, and you can tell me. Or maybe, just maybe, John did know who these were but he needed to hear it. He needed to be told. Because if you have any familiarity whatsoever with this passage, you already know the answer. I would submit that you probably know where this sermon is already headed. But why are you here? Because you need to be told. You need to be told who these people are Because faith comes by hearing. Romans chapter 10. Faith comes by hearing the word of Christ. So let's take that question. Who are these? And let's apply it to both visions. Okay, Who are these? In verses 2 through 8, who are these? One angel tells another to hold back judgment upon the earth. He says, do not harm the earth or the sea or the trees until... We have sealed the servants of our God on their foreheads. So apparently God withholds pouring out the fullness of His judgment for the sake of these people, whoever they are. These are called the servants of God. And it is God's intention to seal them. Now this sealing is a legal word, meaning to claim ownership. That's what the sealing is. When you put your seal on something, it means that that thing now belongs to you. Or, some of you might have been raised on the farm. Branding, right? This animal belongs to me. God sent the angel to hold back judgment upon the earth so that he may mark all of these servants as his own, so that he may seal them, so that he may brand them. And he's going to do it on this interesting location. He's going to do it on their foreheads so that all the world can see. 
Right? There's no denying. I mean, you can see that brand. And their number is 144,000. Who are these? Christians. These are Christians. These are the church. More specifically, this is the church on earth, more properly called the church militant. The church militant. This 144,000, don't get too tripped over, uh, up over that. This, this is not a literal number as some groups like Jehovah's Witnesses claim. But this is, this is a number that is highly symbolic. It represents the fullness of the number of the faithful. I thought about doing the math for you, but I don't want to get too involved with it. But it's, you know, you got 12 tribes of Israel, right? You got 12 apostles, 12 times 12, 144. And then you got this number, 1,000, that represents fullness, completion, and you multiply it by 1,000. And then if you really want to get involved, and I can pull out the charts later, you can break down the 1,000 into smaller components and they represent different things. Anyway. These are all of God's people on earth who've been sealed with the Holy Spirit through holy baptism. You know, it's no accident that whenever we baptize someone in the church, that there's a lot of ritual involved, right? But one of the things that we ceremonially do is we make the sign of the cross on the forehead of the one being baptized. This is an ancient practice. It goes way back because it's this understanding that God is putting His brand on this person. Right? Adult or child, adult or infant, God is claiming this person as his own. That's what holy baptism is. Whenever you were baptized, God put his seal on you. God claimed you as his own. You belong to him now. So these people from this first vision are the church militant. The people from this first vision are you. Servants of God for whom God has withheld His hand of judgment. Brothers and sisters of the Lord Jesus Christ who have been made heirs through His blood. Heirs to the promises of Israel. And what are these people doing? They are marching. When we heard that repetitive refrain this morning in, in the book of Revelation, you know, 12,000 from this tribe, 12,000 from that tribe, it was intended to be repetitive. This idea comes from the Old Testament. In the book of Numbers, we see that the children of Israel, uh, at the beginning of their wilderness wanderings, they're going to go to war. They're going to go to war against foreign nations, pagan nations that hate God and hate His people. And what we see is that God had them uh, uh, do a census to where they would count who were going to be enlisted in that army. And they were numbered by thousands and, and 12,000 and so on and so forth. They're marching together in this formation. That's what's happening here in Revelation 7. God's people meticulously numbered God's people, His church on earth, marching together, not in a war against flesh and blood, but a war against Satan, sin, and death. This spiritual war that goes around us all the time. It goes on around us all the time. Whether we're aware of it, whether we're checked in or checked out, it's still going on. 
and the church marches in the midst of it. There's another word for this war. It's called tribulation. So here we see God's people marching together in the tribulation, in this great trial, the great struggle. Now time would fail us to mention all the ways that that we experience this tribulation, this side of eternity. I can tell you that the early church knew what this was, this tribulation, as it was illegal to confess the name of Christ and it would cost you your life or even worse, the the life of your spouse and your children. That's real tribulation. But here and now, I would say that we struggle against these two enemies. We struggle against an enemy that is from without and an enemy from within. The enemy from without includes the world and the devil. The world and the devil. It's a good thing today, Christian, to be reminded that the world is not your friend. The world is not your friend. Jesus earnestly wants us to love our enemies. Jesus earnestly wants to save those who are lost. Every single one of them. Without qualification. Without reservation. It's important for us to love our enemies as Jesus calls us to love them. But we also must remember that the Bible does label them as such. So we have to be aware. We have to be understanding that we are fighting a battle not against flesh and blood, not against our neighbor, but against a world that hates Christ and hates his gospel. To continue forward without that understanding is just to be naive. So we have to understand that. And the other enemy that we have from without is the devil. Martin Luther writes this in the large catechism. He says, then comes the devil, pushing and provoking in all directions. He leads us to despise and disregard both God's word and his works. He tears us away from faith, hope, and love, and he brings misbelief, false security, and stubbornness. Or, on the other hand, he leads us to despair, denial of God, blasphemy, and innumerable other shocking things. He says this, These are real fiery darts that are shot like poison into the heart, Not by flesh and blood, but by the devil. Are you paying attention? We've got to know what we're up against here, friends. If we're marching together, what are we up against? And if it isn't bad enough, the the tribulation means that we not only face an an enemy from without, but also the enemy from within. And we all know what that is. It's the old Adam. The sinful nature that you wrestle with, that wages war against us every single day, that wages war against the new creation that we are in Christ Jesus and the Spirit of God who takes up residence among his people. You felt it this morning from the second you woke up. Now, the good news amid all that is that God counts you 
as one of the 144,000. You're in the fight. You're enlisted. Maybe it's been a while since you've thought about it that way, but you are. It's good that you're here because you need to be told. You're enlisted. You're sealed by God and you belong to Him because of Jesus' death and resurrection. The bad news is, the other side of that coin is, the fight is hard. The fight is long and often brutal. It's called tribulation for a reason. And many of us today resonate with that struggle in a very real, tangible way. It's why we so desperately need that second picture. It's why we, like John, need to be told who these people are so that we may have peace amid the tribulation. So that we may have strength to endure and persevere as we withstand the attacks of the world, the sinful flesh, and the devil. So in verses 9-17, through we hear of John's second vision. He saw a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures and they fell on their faces before, their th- before the throne and worshipped God. And John sees all of this and he's trying to take all of it in and that's when he's approached by one of the elders around the throne who asks him, who are these? So let us hear the answer. These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So what John was seeing was a picture of the future. Heaven itself, populated by all those who faithfully marched together in the tribulation on earth. He's seeing what we call the church triumphant. First part, church militant. Second part, church triumphant. These people have come out of the tribulation. They are clothed in the very righteousness of Christ being washed by His blood. And what's more, God shelters them with His presence. They experience no hunger, no thirst, and they are not stricken by the heat or by the sun. Now this is is an interesting point. uh, textual thing going on there. But what that's a reference to is, again, those wilderness wanderings, right? Where the people of Israel had to go through the desert for 40 years or under the, uh, under the sun, being stricken by the heat and the sun and so forth. And it's also a reference to the difficulties of being the church militant. But these people have none of that. The Lamb, as their shepherd, guides them to springs of living water and God will wipe away all their tears. So for all the chaos, for all the turmoil the church must endure as we march together in this tribulation, this crucible that is life in a sinful and fallen world, there is a respite. There is a refuge. The sign of the cross 
that you now bear because of your baptism means that you are sealed and that this white robe awaits you. The tribulation will end. Jesus has promised it. This chapter was a source of strength and comfort for St. John amid everything that he was going through, exiled, cut off from his brothers and sisters. Uh, uh, they tried to execute him. I won't tell you how because there's kids in the room. right? He's going through all kinds of stuff in his life, stuff that you and I can't even imagine, and Jesus comes to him with this vision. Brothers and sisters, this vision is a source of strength and comfort for you today amid the chaos the storms, the tribulation that's going on in your life and in the life of the church. We march together arm in arm as God's servants in this fight. We cry real tears here and now. We do. But we are comforted with the promise of the future when joy will come with the morning. Do you know what God counts? He counts your tears. Every single one of them. He doesn't count your sins. He takes them and He removes them from you as far as the east is from the west. He tosses them into the depths of the sea. But He does count your tears. He keeps every single one of them in His bottle. And He promises you that He will wipe away every single one of them whenever He takes you out of this veil of tears and sorrow and He brings you to Himself in heaven. Perhaps today you are crying tears of sorrow and mourning for someone that has died. Someone that has died just this past year or here recently. All Saints Day is a great time to reflect on this. It's part of life in a sinful and corrupted world. But you, Christian, you do not grieve without hope. You have God's sure and certain word. You have the hope of everlasting life. Your Savior is here to tell you today, because you need to hear, that when John looked at God's people on earth, and then he looked at God's people in heaven, he saw you. He saw you along with all those who are in Christ washed in His blood. And this promise is not only for you. This promise is for all those who have gone before us, those who have died in Christ. These are the church triumphant with whom we even now have communion through the mystical body of Jesus, the church. We give thanks and praise to God for the church triumphant. Because right now they are kept safe in the arms of Jesus until one day when He returns, there will be a glorious reunion. Tribulation will be a distant memory. The fight will be over. But for now, we march together with endurance and with hope. Why? Because Jesus wins. Right, Wyatt? In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.